welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, everybody. I'm Amber Nasland. I'm an enterprise sales leader at LinkedIn and a recovering marketer of 20 years or so. I'm also an author, a mom, and a former entrepreneur. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Amber. Can you talk about maybe the most exciting thing that you're working on these days? Oh my gosh, the most exciting thing that I'm working on? You know, I, I don't know if it's like a specific thing that I'm working on, but I, along with so many other people, have kind of dove headfirst into the world of understanding AI and its implications for my work, my team, our business, my clients, and my brain is exploding and I'm learning so much and I, I love learning new stuff. So it's kind of exciting to start thinking about all the practical ways that can work inside the work that I do every day. So it's good, but it's overwhelming because I have no idea how I'm ever going to learn all this. <laughs> I completely relate and feel the same way as someone who is in marketing um, and is very pro AI, but it's also so super overwhelming to try to catch stay on top of every single new tool and new change and new way of doing things. Is there anything in particular that you're finding particularly fascinating right now when it comes to AI? I think for me, the biggest, most dynamic discussion is around the ethics of AI, because we're in such an interesting time in marketing right now, especially when we think about implications of changes to privacy regulations, changes to identity um, and PII regulation. And AI is colliding right upside of that, how we're using data, how we're using content, how we're using the you know, ample work of lots of creators over time to build machine learning engines and LLMs. And it, it's just a fascinating dialogue and discussion for me. So every time something comes up and people are asking really smart, good questions about both the potential of AI and the ethical implications of AI. I get really sucked into that. And I don't think there are any like neat and clear answers, but it's been fascinating for me to listen and watch people much smarter than me uh, have those discussions and dialogues because I think it's going to fundamentally shape the way that we work in the next several years. Oh, absolutely. I could go off on a tangent for several hours about AI and the ethics behind it. Who are some of your favorite people that you've been learning the most from when it comes to practical AI uses as well as AI ethical considerations? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually just went through some courses on LinkedIn learning and I'm obviously I'm biased because I work for LinkedIn and I use LinkedIn learning a ton to help me keep up to date on things. Um, Chris Penn is one of my longtime friends in the digital space and does a lot of incredible work around He's always been a data scientist, but he's been very much on the forefront of helping people understand and make sense of AI. So I really trust his content and, and, and contributions. There's a really great AI and ethics course by Vilas Dar on, uh, that's D-H-A-R on LinkedIn around like the fundamentals of AI and ethics implications. Um, Jim Stern, who's long been in kind of the marketing analytics and data science space, has a great course on AI for marketing and talks a little bit about some of those ethical implications as well as some fundamental concepts around how AI is going to shape the future of marketing. So they're some of my favorites and people who I think are doing really good work. I love it. Um, when it kind of shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that I've always kind of admired and I've been following your work online for a while now is just how your approach to kind of working in public can you maybe talk a little bit about how you kind of think about what to share publicly and how to, yeah. 
especially yeah. stuff that you do at LinkedIn? I get asked about this a lot. I, I guess it's it's interesting to me because I have never I I never put a ton of I shouldn't say I shouldn't I haven't put thought into it, but it hasn't been like top of mind consciousness for a long time. But the more people asked me, the more I realized that it was something I did relatively naturally that other people find a lot of discomfort with. So I have long been in the world of working for a brand or company but also being a content creator on my own and having to balance the responsibilities of being a brand ambassador and a voice, because whether you're an official spokesperson for your company or not, you're always an unofficial spokesperson. Like people make associations with you and the brand that you work for. So there's some important considerations for that. But then there's also the, I think that my work independently to create content online has directly fueled my career in a lot of really important ways. So I really value the independence of that. So a couple of things, like when I work for a brand, I've had very open and honest discussions with people at the outset of that employer and employee relationship to make sure that they're clear on the fact that I create content, I've written books, that intellectual property belongs to me, make sure that's clear in employment agreements and things like that to help make sure those lines are pretty clear. But I also, like I said, I, I take very seriously my responsibility as I am not an official spokesperson for LinkedIn. I don't work in our communications team, but I know that when I'm out there working in public, I am a tacit representative of our brand. And so I think often about, um, Zay Frank was one of the people who always defined brand as an emotional aftertaste. So I think about what emotional aftertaste do I wanna leave with people both when they interact with me personally and what aftertaste I wanna leave with them about the associations they make with me and the company that I work for. So I think that automatically puts in some guide rails. Like I don't get in fights with people in comments. I would much rather walk away from a conversation that's forced versus like dive into the deep end of internet controversy. I learned a long time ago that that doesn't really work. I try really hard on the positive side to make sure that my content reflects my personality, my personal experiences, and that I speak from my lived experiences, not making assumptions or judgments about other people's lived experiences, because the only thing I can really speak to is what I know, and staying really open to other perspectives of people who share their lived experiences with me, that's always made for really positive interactions. And the third thing is I try really hard, I think, a while ago, I tried to come up with my own sort of editorial mission statement for my own content creation and thinking about what does working out loud mean for me. And what I want people to walk away from my work with is a sense that they are not alone in having messy, imperfect careers and lives. So the thing that tends to resonate with people is they're like, oh, you're so refreshing because you're keeping it real and talking about stuff that like a lot of other people don't talk about. I don't want to shy away from the things that are messy or hard or difficult because we all have those. And I think it's a disservice to everybody to make it seem like our lives are perfect um, or our careers are linear and up and to the right forever and ever. So that's sort of something that I can uniquely bring to the conversation. And I feel like that sets my con apart from like other people's. I love that. Um, the way that you kind of phrase that of like, you know, kind of talking about kind of and sharing and not being afraid to share some of the imperfections and kind of that messy middle, I feel like one of the things that people maybe myself included sometimes overthink is 
that fine line between sharing something that's kind of a little bit messy and imperfect and like, quote unquote, I hate the word being authentic. I think it's a buzzword, but I'm going to throw up it here where it's like being authentic versus oversharing. Do you kind of have any guardrails in place for yourself to figure out what is okay to share versus when it might be oversharing and going too far in, in, in that direction? I just don't think there's a hard line. I mean, I think some people have comfort zones that even are broader than mine when it comes to what they choose to share online or not. So I think everybody has to find their own comfort zone. Some people are like queens and kings in controversy. They love to throw bombs out there and like incite debate and or or share really like controversial hot takes. They're not afraid to start even argument, uh, if not just disagreement that's not my comfort zone. And I think about things like when I'm sharing things that have been a struggle for me, I try really hard not to veer into territory where I'm just kind of trauma dumping, where I'm just sharing all the things that are hard about my life or hard about my career. But I try really hard to frame them in terms of the things they've taught me or the reflections that I've managed to glean from that, or even the questions that it's evoked for me if I don't have perfect answers. So I try really hard to find something useful or constructive in those moments versus just sharing what's hard for the sake of like looking for for um, support or pity or whatever or sympathy or whatever it happens to be. I try really hard to frame them in terms of what what I've learned along the way. And that seems to have served me well. But I, I think everybody has to find what their comfort zone is because it's different for everyone. Yeah, well said. And I do believe that I think everyone would have Everyone who works professionally has a personal brand, whether or not they believe it or not. Um, And it's all about kind of how you, you know, what steps you take to kind of shape it. What is your take on just like personal branding in 2024? You know, it's interesting. I've, I've long had an allergy to the term personal branding. And I think it's mostly because the way that it's wielded often makes it feel like a very contrived thing or something that you're trying really hard to engineer in a very specific way. But to your point, I think that much like in branding in the in the marketing and corporate world, a brand is an amalgamation of not just like what you put out into the world, but other people's perceptions of what you put out into the world. And they shape their own taste for your brand or the reputation that you put out So some of it's within your control to shape and a lot of it's not. Mm -hmm. So again, I default back to the idea of what is the aftertaste that I want people to walk away with when they interact with me or when they've consumed my content. So for me, it's not so much about going out and deliberately trying to either associate. I mean, I guess I kind of try to associate myself with, with specific topics or ideas but it's a little more loosey-goosey than that. I, I try really hard to leave people better than I found them um, when I interact with them online. And that guiding principle has helped me you know, walk away from some moments that were like gnarly um, online or, or for people who are. Um, and I think I've gotten better at that over the years too. I think it was easy to get sucked into some of that stuff in the early days of social media. And now I try really hard to take the high road because there's a lot, lot less traffic there. Uh, but I, you know, I understand why people think about personal branding and I do think it's a thing, but it's not, um, it's not what I focus on, I guess, when it comes to the way I approach my content and presence online, I really just kind of want to be the person that people want to interact with and that they trust to come back with 
healthy and constructive dialogue. And if I've done that, I feel like that's a good personal brand or reputational association. Uh, and I feel okay about that. 100%. I think you said something there that was super important, which is like personal branding is like some of it's within your control, but a lot of it isn't. And it's really about how other people perceive your reputation. Reputation is it has not changed. I mean, it just is that because of the world of digital and social media, your reputation can be made or broken in an instant when you're spending time in a digital universe where you are surrounded by tons of strangers. So and with an amplification factor that's massive. So like when you were and prior to the digital era, and I'm Gen X, which means I straddled both the, the analog era and the digital era. And so early in my career, your reputation was made by word of mouth with people that you worked with. So if you did a really good job and you did really smart work, that information traveled. And the word of mouth of that was sort of your personal brand train, if you will. That still exists. It's just that now it can all happen in public and at the speed of light. And the downside of it too, is that whole cadres of people who you've never met or never worked with or have never interacted with you can and will make judgments about you, your work um, and what you stand for based on how you shape that perception online. So it really, having a teenage daughter who is very immersed in the world of social media, we have this conversation a lot especially as she thinks about going off to college. I'm like, what you put online, like the internet has a memory. So being conscious of that and how you shape your reputation through how you behave toward other people with your own content has an impact. Um, and it can have a lasting one more so now than it even did when I was younger. Yeah, absolutely. As someone who's a millennial who kind of grew up with social media, like in high school, like with the early social media in high school and college, and then obviously through my professional career, I uh, couldn't agree more. And I always wonder a little bit how Gen Z, sometimes I like how like kind of Gen Z was even impacted even more than that when it comes to the fact that like they had Instagram and TikTok when they were in middle school or even sometimes before that. Yeah, I mean, they are native to yeah. these platforms in a way that we were not. And we had to sort of learn and integrate into our lives. And I think that that shapes differently how we approach them. I am far more conscious of the risks, I think, and had to have those conversations with my daughter as she was coming up through a digital world, because it's not something that was just naturally top of mind for her. But as she's thinking about things like going to college, she thinks about, you know, her She's a she's an equestrian athlete. So she thinks about her reputation within the equestrian space and how she's representing herself. And we have to have conversations all the time about, you know, being mindful of what you put on the public Internet is really important when lots of people can make really bad decisions about how they what they do with that information. And I've had plenty of incidences of my own where I've had stalkers, I've had trolls, I've had all kinds of people come out of the woodwork to try to harm me based on their perceptions of my content. And it just really kind of puts in sharp relief that as powerful as this stuff can be for good, there are also very real, very significant downsides to being present online. And we'd be remiss to not pay attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like you almost, I feel like you and like pretty much a lot of people in kind of the Gen X generation pretty much have that like analog childhood versus social media online as an adult. What are some other ways that's kind of shaped your approach to being on social media and like working in public? 
You know, I think for me, it has, in a lot of ways, I love the power that the digital world has brought to So like some of my first interactions on the internet were like IRC and bulletin boards and, and chat rooms. And I think the best part of all of that is it allowed for connection and community outside of things like geography or circumstance. So when you're a kid, your friend group is made up of the people you like go to school with or live in your neighborhood because those are the people you interact with on a day-to-day basis. But it sort of limits your sphere of how many people you can and do interact with. And so I enthusiastically embraced the idea that I could talk to people from all over the world. I could talk to people who came from different lifestyles or backgrounds or cultures that I hadn't been exposed to. So I was fully starry-eyed at the idea that I could meet and interact with all of these people. But like I said, it uh, that comes with downsides too. So there's a whole nefarious side of the web where people are trying actively to harm others, scam others. So I think it's like made me enthusiastic about branching out of my like neighborhood and your only friends get to be at work or at school kind of world. But it's given me pause in a lot of ways because you really do. I don't know if it's just making me like an old crusty adult and a parent, but the, it makes you cautious of, of the risks of the digital world and how easily information or content or data can be stolen and used for nefarious purposes. So in a lot of ways, I think it's made me a little smarter and a little more, um, I, I call it staying frosty, you know, just staying a little aware of your surroundings but I think it's also made me continue to be a passionate and enthusiastic advocate for what online and digital communities can do when they're directed in positive ways. So that that part of it has, I've, I've reaped tons of benefits from the positive side of the digital world, but I think it's made me a smarter and savvier uh, parent and professional because I am always have one eye open on the downsides. Yeah, I feel like that's a really smart way to approach all of this and shifting gears a little bit, but on the same topic around like kind of advocacy and stuff like that, something that I've always admired is like how public you've been about like talking about imposter syndrome and how to recognize it and how to cope with it very publicly. Can you maybe talk a little bit about kind of that a little bit in a little bit more detail? Sure. Imposter syndrome became sort of a, a pet topic for me to explore when I was caught in the grips of it desperately after I had left a very successful job and prominent job to start my own business, which failed miserably. Um, And then a couple of years later, I went through two subsequent layoffs. And I was just really stuck in not knowing which end was up, feeling like I was out of my depth, um, starting to believe the naysayers and the critics about what I could or couldn't do. And I, I don't know if this is just a me thing, but what it made me do is realize what I was feeling and then seek to understand a little bit more about that phenomenon. And imposter syndrome was studied in the very beginning, like in the 1970s with a couple of women who were in academia and they were researching it because they they realized anecdotally that they talked to a bunch of their female colleagues who had also felt at times like they were out of their depth, that they weren't qualified, that they were faking it, and that anybody at any moment was going to find out that they were really not qualified to be doing what they were doing. What's interesting about that is that since that original study in the 70s, 
there's been a lot of dialogue around imposter syndrome. Is it really a thing? Is it an actual phenomenon? And the conclusion I've personally come to is that what imposter syndrome needs is a rebrand because it was like, it was really framed as this detrimental hindrance of, uh, you know, the, these feelings of inadequacy. And at the beginning, it was very skewed in favor of populations of women. But what we realized is that this is a very normal thing that a lot of people feel. And if you can turn it a little bit on its head, what you realize is that feeling of, I don't belong here. What am I doing? I'm out of my depth is really a, an indicator of hitting a growth spurt intellectually, professionally, whatever it happens to be on the brink of leveling up because you are square in that phase of discomfort. It's also something that's been terribly weaponized against people who are in marginalized cultures. So instead of creating systems where Black women, for example, can succeed and have opportunity in the workplace and changing our systemic biases to accommodate that, we just tell them they have imposter syndrome and the responsibility is on them to change their mindset, which actually really makes me angry. <laughs> so, so like the more I read about imposter syndrome, the more I feel like it's a grift to tell all of us that somehow we are the inadequate ones when really sometimes it's the systems around us or different starting lines that we've been given. Um, and sometimes it's just growth and development disguised as this like terrible negative thing. But growth and development is something we all have to do. Otherwise we get stagnant. And the more I was able to reframe those really difficult, tough moments as like, hey, I'm about to venture into a new level of my own professional capabilities. And the reason I feel so out of my depth right now is because I am a little bit, like I'm learning stuff that I've never learned before or I'm encountering situations I've never encountered before. And what it's done is it's just helped me reinforce that what I need is a little bit of like resilience and bravery and courage and the ability to step into situations where I'm not the smartest person in the room. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So I'm kind of on team, let's jettison the term imposter syndrome. Um, and let's talk about A, dismantling unfair systems and B, learning to embrace um, what growth and development can mean for us as individuals. I love it. I have so many follow-up questions to what you just shared there. One, totally agree that I feel like the term imposter syndrome probably needs to be rebranded. If you were in charge of rebranding it, what would you call it instead? Oh my gosh. I don't, I don't know. I'm not good at naming. I don't, I'm not good with pithy naming of things, but I really, I have used the term in multiple like talks I've done around imposter syndrome as leveling up the feeling of, you know, if you're a gamer at all, you kind of know the feeling of getting through that really difficult gauntlet or a boss level. And you're like, okay, now I get to level up. Cause I just went through something that was really, really hard. I think of it in those terms and people seem to resonate when we talk about that in you know, at conferences or in workshop sessions, we're like, right, yeah, okay, if I think of it that way, then it feels empowering, or it feels like something that I want to aspire to versus something I want to avoid. And I, I tend to think, and, I, and psychology backs me up, that when we look out for positive growth milestones, it's much more motivating than looking at avoiding detrimental things. So I just want to give it a positive spin, because I think it can be as long as we don't let it become a place that we get stuck. Yeah, I love that. And that actually kind of leads to my follow-up question, which is, uh, I love the idea of it being a, as a way to like level up. And you can either kind of level up and use that to grow 
or in other scenarios, you can let it kind of deal with analysis paralysis and self-doubt. What are some of the like kind of, kind of coping strategies that you've used to like have it fuel your growth instead of like spiraling and self-doubt? No, that's a really great, great question. I'll try to be succinct here because I've found a few. One is, I, I, lots of people have, have talked about this idea, but having kind of a personal board of directors, I call it kind of my committee of champions. And I mean, it's not people who are just blowing the sunshine up my skirt and telling me I'm awesome. It's like a very small trusted circle of people that I can use as a sounding board to help me not just like support me through those areas of, of confidence crisis or, or self-doubt, but also where I can find the things I'm good at and they give me reinforcement around where I do really good work so that I can focus on my strengths versus just my deficits. That's been a really helpful thing to me. And my personal kind of committee is made up of people for, throughout my professional and background as well as my personal worlds. So it's been very helpful to have other people to bounce things off of. The second thing is really counterintuitive to what we just talked about, but like getting the heck offline um, and getting off social media sometimes and either taking extended breaks or being more disciplined about the time I spend online, it becomes so easy to fall into the comparison trap of looking at complete strangers on their Instagram or their LinkedIn. And you're like, these people are always doing these amazing things. And I'm so much so far behind that comparison behavior can become addictive and taking digital detoxes has been really, really helpful to me in managing that. And I've also just found that making sure that I deliberately spend time in, I think some people would refer to it as like your zone of genius or things you know you're really good at. For me, I writing is my outlet and I do a lot of processing of my thoughts and ideas through words. So for some people, it might be a video or a podcast, or maybe it's reading or maybe it's creative endeavors. But I think finding some things where you can process and work through your own thinking helps you realize that you do have sort of a unique perspective and it allows you to step away a little bit from comparing yourself to everybody else because you know where your sweet spot is and you can spend more time there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also mentioned something about like kind of digital detoxes to avoid falling too far into the comparison trap. Do you kind of make those kind of unstructured or do you kind of structure them in general, like X number of months or X number of weeks? I'm going to like deliberately go offline for several days or week or whatever. Yeah, I wish I could tell you I was super scientific about it. Um, I haven't been. I've just sort of very quickly identified when I get to points where I am drowning and I can feel it. I can like I can feel the tension. I can feel the anxiety. I can feel the draw of constantly wanting to check my notifications for the dopamine hit. So first of all, I don't have any noti notifications on my phone or on my desktop for social media apps. So I very much, the only time I will see notifications is when I actually open the apps themselves and spend time in them. Um, I've also tried to, every once in a while, I've taken extended like sort of sabbaticals from social media up to a month or two at a time. Um, this past year, for example, um, I, I, I lost both my parents in 2023 to long-term illness. And some of that was just by force. Like I, I just didn't have the bandwidth or the time or the energy to spend on social media. So it forced a detox, but other times I've done it when I can just feel that I'm 
overstimulated. Uh, I call it like my neuro spicy ADHD brain sometimes runs away with me and I just need to walk away for a little bit. So I can kind of feel it. I think some other people do it in a much more deliberate and structured way. Mine is a little bit more by feel, but I, I do it with a fair bit of frequency and it never seems to work out tidy, but it seems to, it's, it's, my body seems to know when I need it. Yeah, that's like really, really well said. And it, I mean, it, there's something to be said with just like, you know, trusting your gut instinct and knowing enough about yourself and your own psychology to feel, figure out, okay, like I need to step away from social media right now. This is kind of a secondary question that is when it comes to imposter syndrome, it's all about kind of like knowing yourself and like leveling up versus being in kind of self-doubt and analysis paralysis. Are there things that you've been able to notice or whether it's with colleagues and stuff like that, when you've kind of noticed somebody else might be going through feeling like an imposter and maybe needs to level up? Like, and if so, how do you kind of help them through that? What's so interesting is that when I started talking about this topic um, more prolifically online and specifically, and just kind of sharing my learnings and observations, it was wild to me how many people came out of the woodwork, either publicly in my comments or in my inbox and my messages, begging to talk about this. And the thing that's been so both interesting and a little bit heartbreaking is how many people suffer with this in silence, feeling like they are all by themselves. Like this is the only, you're the only person in the world that feels this way. They're the only person that struggles with this. So I found a ton of power in honestly, just the connection and validation with people that this is not unique to you. This is not a thing. You're not alone on an island out there feeling this. Everybody goes through this. And my kind of humorous take on it is I say to people all the time, you know who doesn't feel like an imposter is actual imposters. Like people who are actually out there running a grift and, and, and faking their way through everything never encounter this. It's, it's only the people who are actually out there trying really hard, who are conscientious, trying really hard to do good work they are the ones who have the self-doubt. So if you're even questioning your worthiness, that in and of itself is already telling you that you are self-aware and conscientious. And like, I don't want people to get mired in their shortcomings because as I said earlier, I think it's important that we focus and double down on our strengths. So I spend a lot of time talking with people about when, are, when do you feel energized by your work? When, what is something you've done recently that you're super proud of, whether it's personally or professionally or, or some other combination of those things? And then how can you replicate that? Where are other areas you can find to find a few wins, whether they're small or big, because we carry through the momentum of those winning moments. And it really helps us bust out of the, I can't, I won't, somebody's gonna tell me I'm not allowed. Um, finding the momentum and the inertia from a few wins and figuring out how to do more of the things that we're good at or that energize us kind of takes on a life of its own. And it's amazing how people's eyes light up when you start asking them what they love or what they're curious about. Suddenly they find stores of energy again, and it's easier to walk away from those feelings of self-doubt or inadequacy that we get stuck in. Yeah, 100%. I think you kind of hinted at this, but I wanted to ask this another way, which is, it almost feels like momentum and having any sort of small win can kind of build on itself and help you kind of see yourself as, hey, I'm actually not an imposter. I actually do know what I'm talking about and I'm just leveling up. Would you agree with that? Totally. But one thing that we don't do a lot, is, and I think it's because we're uncomfortable asking for this kind of feedback, 
is especially in the corporate world, we are accustomed to seeking feedback about where we need to improve. That's sort of like the main structure of feedback, whether it's performance reviews or anything else. And we're always talking about what our deficits are and or where our weak spots are and where we need to do more work. I don't think we do enough asking. And I think part of it is like false humility. Part of it is like feeling like we're fishing for compliments, but I don't think we do enough asking people that we trust what they perceive us to be really good at. So some of my most insightful conversations and moments where I have really unlocked something in my head are when I sat down with a few people who I really respected and trusted and said, what do you think I'm great at? When you watch me or when you, when you pay attention to what I'm doing, my work, my content, whatever it is, what strikes you as a strength of mine? And what's so crazy about that exercise is that it is rarely the things that I think I'm good at. So when I think about skills that I have that are strength, I've been blown away sometimes by people saying that my particular strength is empathy or my ability to relate to other people or my humor or something that like I didn't nail. And sometimes that's because the things that we are really excellent at naturally, we don't give enough credit to. I call it like the, the paradox of knowledge. So like when you become really, really good at something, you tend to devalue that in your mind as something that's not all that valuable because it comes easily to you. For example, I'm a writer that comes very naturally to me. So I often devalue how powerful my own writing can be, but writing is not easy for everybody. So I get people commenting all the time, like, oh my gosh, your writing is so natural and so easy. I wish I could write like that. So it, it like, it never would have dawned on me that that's a superpower, but it is. It, so asking other people what they perceive your strengths to be can be incredibly enlightening. And I don't think we do enough of it because we're afraid that like people are going to think we're weird for asking them to give us girls. but it's more structured than that. It's not like, tell me I'm great. It's tell me what I'm great at. Uh, and that can be really helpful. Yeah, that's so important. Um, I could dive into this for hours. But I do want to make sure I ask, a, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions towards the end of these episodes. Sure. Um, what's the unconventional skill you have that you're secretly very proud of? The unconventional skill that I have. Oh, gosh. Um, to think really hard about that. Honestly, I think it's my, my, my talent for music. So I'm a musician. I was a music major in college. And the, it's not necessarily unconventional, but a lot of people don't relate that to the professional world. But I think there's so much about right brain creativity and the arts that stimulates thinking and innovation and unlocks centers of your brain that are really critical to doing great work. And again, it's not something people mostly think of um, when you think of like a marketing or a sales job, but I think it's been pretty important in my success overall. Uh, I would challenge that given that every single time I've asked that question, pretty much, and I haven't asked it that many times, so pretty much everyone has come back with something that had to do with the arts or music. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I think I I, I meet a lot of people in the marketing and, and sales worlds that have some kind of creative background or creative endeavors in their personal lives. And yeah, I really think it's like a a, a boon to the work that we do. I love it. And kind of a follow-on question, if you could trade lives with any celebrity or a historical figure for one day, who would you choose and why? 
trade lives. Wow. Okay. I will never pick a celebrity because I think that would be miserable. <laughs> like living that publicly under that much scrutiny, I think would be insane. But I think I mentioned earlier that I'm an equestrian and so is my daughter. Um, I would love to trade places with a world-class equestrian like BZ Madden or Boyd Martin. None of you will probably know who those people are, but they are top of the top of their game. And I just like a day in their life would be magical to me. So I would love to trade places with one of them. I love it. Super, super unique. And if you could send a message to yourself 10 years in the future, what would you tell yourself? Oh my gosh. I've actually done this exercise of like writing past selves letters and writing future selves letters. I'm going to borrow a phrase from my, my teenage daughter. Um, and I think it would be summed up in, it's just not that deep. again, going through a year like I did where there was so much personal loss, you really reflect on what matters. And I know it sounds really trite, but I have spent so much of my early career pinning my self-worth to my professional identity. So the only thing that made me feel worthy was my professional accomplishments. And the reality is like, I work in advertising in, in the digital world. Like nobody dies on the table in advertising. We're not curing cancer. It's just not that important. And as my parents were leaving this earth, neither one of them said to me, gosh, I really wish I I had worked more Um, or gosh, I really wish I had finished that project at at the office. Um, They talked about wanting ahead, wishing for more time um, with us or wishing that they had spent more time with family or friends or doing things that they loved. And it just really recentered me on telling myself 10 years from now um, that I, I hope that you have wrung every drop out of every day that you've gotten outside of your job. Because I really hope that in 10 years from now, I can look back and say that I worked to live and not the other way around. Yeah, that's super deep and profound. What's one piece of advice you would give to someone, let's say someone who's Gen Z entering the workforce in the next year or two? Uh, I think it probably harkens back to the conversation we were having earlier. Your reputation is the thing that you is going to get you the furthest in your career. And it is the thing that you will spend years and years and years building. And it only takes a moment to undo all that hard work. So being a person of character and integrity and follow through, doing what you say you're going to do, treating people the way that you'd want to be treated, leaving people and environments better than you found them um, is so much more important than all of the hard specific skills in the world. Being a good human being is the currency that will carry you forward. So protect that at all costs. Yeah, I could not agree more. It's been really, really great chatting with you on the Remote Archive podcast, Amber. Where can listeners find you online? Oh my goodness. I, I spend most of my time, like coincidentally, not coincidentally, online, uh, on, on LinkedIn these days. So you can find me Amber Nasland on LinkedIn. I think my slug is like in slash Amber Nasland, all one word. And I've been recently delving back into the world of like real-time social media. So I'm active on threads. I've sort of abandoned Twitter after a really long time there, sadly. Um, but I'm my handle on threads is Amber Cadabra, which is where I've been online for years and years and years. So you can probably find me there too. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.